Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. So the case is like, yeah, you should come back into connection because it's good and you'll get, get, get things from it. And you can, you can enjoy more relational intimacy and expand your um, emotional psychological range by connecting with cedar trees and volcanoes and deities, but also you'll sleep better at night because the part of you that knows it's a relational universe will feel like a little safer uh, existing as part of you. Hi, I'm Sarah Avon Stover, host of Truth, Love, and Beauty. I'm an author, internal family systems practitioner, and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality, who's built a long career since the early 2000s to be exact in supporting women to cultivate greater psycho-spiritual wholeness and, in turn, to come home to themselves. My dedication to women and to the upliftment of the feminine at large has been a lifelong one. From growing up as the second oldest of four sisters in a Connecticut suburb of New York City, to studying at an Ivy League all-women's college, all the way up to today, And the very things I support women with mirror the struggles that I've had. Things like doubting, pushing, perfecting, hating, and yes, at times, even hurting myself. Yet I've found 
And I have a sense that because you're here, you have to, that these very wounds and pain points can become openings for profound healing, growth, and spiritual insight. I created this podcast in service of honoring just this, this sacred healing journey that we women are on. It was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations with leading thinkers and luminaries about all facets of the feminine spiritual journey. Plus, this podcast highlights three of the core values we must embrace on the feminine path, truth, love, and beauty, values which we all need more of during this tumultuous time in history. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Truth, Love, and Beauty. It is a dreary early November day here in Boulder. I think we're actually supposed to get our first snow later this afternoon. And we just passed over the cross-quarter day or the halfway point between the equinox and the solstice. So today's conversation is a fitting one, as this is also the time of the year when it's said that the veils between the world worlds is the thinnest and we have the most access to our ancestors. But we'll get to that in a moment. And first, I wanted to share some good news for any of you listeners who aren't on my email newsletter and who don't follow me on social, where I announced this last week. First, I think I shared this here with you over this past year that last January, I started working on the proposal for my next book and then started submitting it to agents over the summer because with my first two books, I didn't use an agent and I just felt called to to move to a new publisher this time around and to get an agent to support me in that. And in August, I signed with my top choice agent, which I'm very grateful for and very happy about. And just a few weeks after that, Sounds True made me an offer for this next book. So my third book will be published by Sounds True in 2024. And I am very grateful for how swiftly this entire process unfolded. It's also a bit incredulous to me that this book will be coming out nine years after my second one. That is a big gap, much bigger than I ever intended it to be. Yet I also know that I write my books from a really deep place inside and that there was definitely a lot of life that I needed to live before I can now sit down and write this book. But this book did not just come into my awareness last January. In fact, this book and I have a much longer history. I started working on the proposal six years ago, almost seven years ago now. And at that time, I just kept getting knocked over by life's waves. And I came to the point where I had to accept that I simply didn't have the bandwidth to continue on with it at that time because writing a book takes a lot. So I set it down and I actually even set this particular title of the book because I get the title of the book first before I understand what the book is. So I set the title free. I set the concept of the book free to be written by someone else if that what was meant to happen. 
But then this time last year, I started to feel this book still kind of orbiting me. And I I knew that it was telling me that I had learned and lived what I needed to now be able to write it. And now I have the circumstances in my life where I have the space and support to write it. So this book is the one that I wish that I had had to help me traverse a very dark valley of my life that I crossed over these past several years. It's the book that I wish that I had to share with my own students and clients who are traversing similar dark valleys in their own lives. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. And I thank you for celebrating with me here. And I thank you for your support over the next several months while I'm really nose down to complete this manuscript by mid-May. And I guess I'm guessing that I will share some updates with you all along the way as I go, if that's of interest. But overall, my wish is that this book helps us all to engage with our suffering more wholeheartedly so we can become wiser, more compassionate human beings, and so that we can all experience both the riches available in the dark and also the joys available in rebirth. And that's a great segue into today's conversation because this month's guest on the podcast, Daniel Four, was a companion of mine through his teachings during some of the years that I'll be writing about in this book. His work on ancestral healing has been especially impactful for me, and this has made him just one of the teachers that I recommend and to my students and refer to the most when they're in need of excavating this particular layer in their own healing journeys. So Daniel is a teacher and practitioner of practical animism, who specializes in ancestral and family healing, and in helping folks learn to relate well with the rest of life. He's a doctor of psychology, marriage and family therapist, founder and director of ancestral medicine, and author of Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing. Daniel's a lifelong student of earth-honoring traditions and an initiate in West African Orisha traditions. His recent ancestors are settler colonialists to North America from England, Germany, and Ireland, and he now lives with his wife and two daughters in Andalusia near the Sierra Nevada mountains in Granada, Spain. For more information about Daniel, you can visit his website, ancestralmedicine.org, and that link is also in the show notes. So in our conversation today, we talk about the ways that Western healing and psychotherapy traditions often limit our process by solely focusing on the individual, and conversely, why opening up to the ancestral realm, which includes our blood ancestors and beyond, can really accelerate and catalyze so much in our own healing and experience of wellness. We also talk about what inspired Daniel to pack up his family of four and move from the U.S. to Spain recently, as well as how that transition is going for them. We discuss why grief is a sacred practice and how we can embrace it as such as well as next steps we can all take to begin to feel more connected to our ancestors the land we live on, and life at large. So this is good medicine for these times, 
and really important piece of the puzzle for anyone who is on a dedicated healing journey, which we all are as human beings because life is one extended healing journey. I really value Daniel's teachings and it warms my heart to be able to share them with you today. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks. It's good to be here. And we always start our conversations with a personal check-in. So I welcome you to share with us where you're joining us from today and how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind. I'm in La Subia, Granada province in Andalusia in southern Spain, where I live now with my wife and two young girls. And I'm doing pretty good. You know, we just moved here um, seven weeks ago. And so I am still adjusting on the level of body and culture and rhythm and work and every other thing. But I'm I'm good. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I could say a lot about my own process, but I'm enjoying the change. And so far it is as uh, good as I had hoped in terms of uprooting our life and moving across the ocean. So I'm glad to be here and doing well. Thanks. Yeah, I'm on your I'm on your newsletter mailing list. And when I got the news that you moved, some parts of me were envious. So I think a lot of people listening in the US, it's just with everything that that is happening here, that has been happening here, that could happen here. I know a lot of us are considering moving abroad and it's it's inspiring that you not only moved yourself, but a family of four. And mm-hmm. um, was there like a particular defining moment or like what 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 led you to say, let's let's do this? There's a lot I could say, but in, in general factors are wanting to raise our daughters in a multicultural way that is not reflective of American exceptionalism and imperialism and wanting them to be multilingual and wanting personally to be closer to Europe and in a more culturally diverse place for parenting and just personally. And, uh, I was uh, at our daughter's, older daughter's completion for her Montessori. She was was four and found myself in June, I think it was, standing in the back row, wondering how I would uh, navigate an active shooter situation. And uh, I don't want our uh, children to be killed by uh, machine gun fire at their schools. And so that's another reason I've left the United States and hope to not return. And I like values like uh, more or less free education and healthcare. And there's a quality of unresolved trauma. And I guess I would say like cynicism and meanness uh, that I um, just feel real sad about having spent the first 45 years of my life, you know, aside from travel in the U S and, I um, am just beginning to detox. I was with a friend today and uh, it was a comfortable temperature out. And he left, we went to Pottery 
shop or something and uh, he left his eight month old in the car with the windows down because it's comfortable because she was napping she was like actually out of his sight for a moment and i was like in my nervous system I was like whoa is that okay oh my god you're leaving your kid in your car this is dangerous the world is dangerous and uh he was just like he's french moroccan and he was just like it's okay man you know so she's right there it's okay and so i'm uh uh yeah i'm downshifting here there's lots of other layers but as a father i I want our children to grow up in a better environment than the united states is currently able to offer and that's privileged of me and i feel slightly bad about it but not enough to stop me from taking the opportunity to move yeah i hear that i remember when i visited iceland some years ago I saw like going into the grocery store, people would just leave their babies in the carriages outside of stores as they went in because uh-huh. they, they, they felt that fresh air is better for them than being in the store. And uh-huh. it's totally safe to do that. And it was just so shocking because you could never, you could never do that here in the U S. Oh yeah. I looked up like how many mass shootings are there in Spain? And it was like, none. We don't like, they're just like we don't we don't do it like that here. We I mean, it's not like a few every once in a while. It's like no, there aren't as many cops here. It's not, not as many guns. I, it's not the idealized things. Everywhere has their complexity, but uh, you know. So those are a few things. I did not to be so heavy about it, but uh, the U.S. is a mess, and I feel so sad for how it is there. And all that still lives in me and will for all of my life, but um, I need a break. Yeah. So, so I'm ex- experimenting with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of what I wanted to talk about today with you is this whole process and concept of ancestral healing. And that's how I was first introduced to your work several years ago, a colleague here in Boulder recommended it and I I had a session with you and started the ancestral started working with one of my lineages and um with one of my lines and got your book and then didn't continue on and then the pandemic came and suddenly I was just sheltering in place by myself not much to do and you were offering your online course for ancestral lineage healing And I was a part of it, which I was really grateful for because I had a lot more time and space to do the work and also more motivation because of all that you shared about how, especially during that time when we were alone, like we could call on other than humans to support us and to help us. So what what led you to initially become so interested in ancestral healing that that is the main focus of one of the main focuses of what you what you share in the world yeah Uh, i was drawn to ritual and religion and shamanism and things like that when i was even a teenager and had the good fortune to connect with some teachers early on they gave me some basic skills and uh, those early teachers nudged me to relate directly with my own ancestors so they planted a seed that was um, very helpful and what came from that that was in the late 90s is I ended up connecting with much older 
pre-Christianity in my case, Germanic, English ancestors, places where my people of blood are from historically. And and that was very um, connective and potent and meaningful. And then uh, engaged in a practice of partnering with them to assist those among the recent dead, like my grandfather who had taken his own life or other uh, ones from my recent lineages that still were in need of healing. No one had been tending in spirit to those things. So I, I did a, a cycle of that own uh, that work in my own and for maybe six years, of, you know, fairly focused way and also trained as a started to train as a therapist during that time. And then from 2004 or five until the present, really. So the last, I don't know, just 25 years, something. I don't know if I can do the math, 20 years. And uh, I've started to help others with the process of coming into relationship with their ancestors of blood and others. You know, I've expanded the inquiry of getting to know ancestors of land and lineage and whatnot. It's not the only thing I'm up to, but the things that have contributed to that continuing to be a part of my path, not just like an interest for a little while, one is recognizing how powerful it's been to address the, the the wound or the cultural like hole or lack of culture from the blown out mess of white supremacy, of settler colonialism, of the sort of myth of U.S. exceptionalism and all the tendency to avoid the difficult history in the United States and, you know, the Americas generally. And that... Um, I didn't understand what a bad impact that has until I started digging around and realizing that a lot of the you know pain I was moving with is like ultimately cultural pain. And um, so it, I could say a lot, but those that's one way in which the reconnection has uh, sustained me personally. What I've seen with others is that it's a beneficial for personal and family healing, like deeply beneficial in a way that, it doesn't exclude, but it expands upon the project of psychotherapy. Uh, I'm also a trained psychotherapist, doctor of psychology. And those practices are very valuable and not always, but often they're, they're fairly, um, they're missing a piece, they're incomplete because they're not tracking the deeper roots of the patterns. And they're often not necessarily putting folks into direct communion with the gifts and blessings and goodness that come from their families, even when their families are harmful in the recent generations. And so just cutting off from family isn't a fix. That, that creates a different kind of wound. And that leads me to say thing, I guess, about another sustaining quality of the ancestral focus, which is, it's good at uprooting extreme individualism and the illusion that we are separate or separable from the rest of life. And a lot of people, like if it's a yes, no question, are you separate from the rest of life? People are gonna be like, no, let me check no on that. But we tend to get a lot of that conditioning and it leads to a lot of loneliness and just like suffering that's avoidable. And getting to know and come into conscious communion in relationship with their own ancestors of body and blood, um, it, it encourages a little bit more soft and diffuse sense of separateness or identity. Like this is also the voice of my ancestors. I'm also the face of my lineages. This is a conversation also between my people and your people. 
and, and us and all the listeners and their people and the earth as it speaks through us and coming to not just be like, that's a cool idea, but to experience those layers of connectedness and what we are is an antidote to the sense of being cut off or to being very uh, individual in a separate way. And that matters. That leads to like better uh, political choices, better education systems, better parenting, kinder relationships, more accountability, things like that. So it's good for getting at cultural wounds, I guess, is what I'd say. Yeah. And that is so true about psychotherapy, like as as helpful as it can be, it, it has its limitations and that, like you said, it doesn't necessarily address the roots of where these things come from in us. And I know that was my experience. It's like there was only a certain level I could go to in my own personal healing and just tapping into the ancestral level just kind of accelerated things or op- opened up so much more for me. It's good to have a well-adjusted self, but at a certain point, the self is the problem or it's the obstacle. And therapy, a lot of therapists, unless they've done those layers of cultivation, and some some have, of course, uh, but therapy doesn't on the whole tend to um, frame the client's suffering as cultural pain, as soul level pain, as pain that comes from confusion about destiny and purpose, as, uh, you know, things like that, which actually matter a great deal. If we're not on an identity level congruent with what our soul came here to do, the soul level of what we are is going to make it difficult for that unhelpful false identity to keep functioning. And so the having our life fall apart might be what's needed to come into more congruency. If a therapist has seen that in their own life and done their own inner work, then they can probably hold a good space for it, but it's not typically part of the training. Yeah. Yeah. And my experience of just learning to connect with my ancestors through your work is that a lot of my relationship with my ancestors is helping to keep me on my path, helping me to show me what my path is and that's like one of my main um, compasses now, yeah. that connection. Congrats. Yeah, they're really excellent guides. It's another benefit of getting, of, of devoting a cycle of care to ancestral healing and reconnection is it almost always leads to a, a bit more clarity about one's calling, destiny, purpose, work in the world whatever. That doesn't mean it's how you make money, but there tends to be uh, some perspective on what gifts and challenges we've inherited from our people. That perspective follows from actually coming into conversation with them. They're like, oh yeah, you've been experiencing these things. Let us give you the fuller context. Like, yeah, you have these gifts. Let us give you the instruction manual on them. Like it's easier to actually talk with people who lived them their whole life. Here's some instruction. Well, that's efficient. It's efficient. You don't have to recreate everything. And um, in that way, it's a chance. We come into relationship with them. We bring the unconscious relationship conscious as a way to also have more freedom from them. There's a certain amount of uh, influence that's unavoidable. And if we, if we bring that conscious, we can actually have some amount of choice and negotiation within it. Or we can do it unconsciously, and it may or may not turn out 
well, but it'll turn out somehow. It just won't be conscious. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm an internal family systems practitioner and something that I appreciate about that modality is how it brings in the ancestral piece and the cultural piece and looking at what we take on from those levels. And a lot of your work is actually, a lot of practitioners are actually integrating some of your work into, including myself now, and, and it's very, it's very complementary um, in, in working with, uh, an IFS is called legacy burdens or sure. ancestral, ancestral wounds or traumas. Um, so it's, yeah, I appreciate having having the experience with your work to be able to to bridge it in those areas as well. On a real practice oriented level, the approaches to psychotherapy that recognize that we're a multiplicity of voices and parts and people and souls or whatever, I find to be the most congruent or compatible with earth honoring animist values, with ritual arts, with all that. Because there's not, I mean, different systems may hold it in different ways, but a good parts model isn't going to pressure the individual human to reconcile all those parts into a singular self in an imp- in a sort of oppressive way. We're a myriad of like, a, you know, cacophony, lots of different voices, lots of different needs and things and ancient things and immature things and all kinds of aspects of what we are. And when we close that down, our humanity is diminished. We're, uh, we're doing the same thing as clear cutting a forest. We're just doing it psychologically. We're saying, um, no, we're going to remake the world in the, in the image and the voice of these certain aspects of self at the expense of these others. Mm. And so part of the ecology sensibility is allowing for a lot of different, um, different aspects of what we are. And so speaking of animism, that's, I know that's another big um, part of what you teach and also something that I appreciated during the pandemic and now beyond of, uh, but especially during that time when just not being around humans of just opening up relationship to trees and stones and bodies of water and the land itself. And, um, I'm wondering if you can speak more about that, just because we we live in such a generally human human centric world. Like, what are some ways to deepen connection with what you call other than humans, and what what's the benefit yeah. of that? Yeah, let's talk about culture for a moment. Like, if I were to say, you know, if we were to say as two European ancestry people, like, you know, what's the benefit of being in relationship with? brown people or black people what's the benefit of being in relationship with you know trans or gender non-binary people or people who don't speak english why is that valuable or whatever that would be like whoa that's like a that's an edgy question why do you even need to ask that right and one would hope that it's uh, obvious to affirm the humanity of all different kinds of people and the other than humans, by whatever name, are are just people. And so we're talking about uh, cultural dynamics. When we talk about our dynamics with the local rivers or the grasses and near our home or the food that we're eating or the 
electrical fire used to have this conversation or the fibers and the clothes we're wearing. These uh, plants and animals and elemental beings and spirits and deities and by whatever name, they also have culture. They also are culture, incultured beings. So humans are not the only source of culture and or the only source of personhood, if we want to be a little philosophical about it. So if we say, we could say, what are, what's the benefit of relating with rock people, like of, of communing with the stones? We could talk about the wisdom that uh, the stones often uh, carry and can activate within us. And that's, that's an, a fine conversation, sort of like a what's good for me about it. Like, what do I get out of it? Okay, so you know, that's one conversation. Another layer of it is what we get out of it is our sense of self is not diminished in the same way. Like as a white person, if I'm racist, of course that's harmful to the other than white people. I'm being a racist loser too, but it also hurts me. It hurts me in a, like a soul, like it diminishes my being. I'm directly harmed by it also. And if we don't honor the relatedness with the rest of life, of course the others are harmed by it. And we get things like a global extinction crisis and rapid human-driven climate change and other kinds of catastrophe that we're living in. But we also are less well ourselves. It hurts us on some level, like we're diminished. And so in that way, um, it's good for our soul to come back into relationship and in, to bring the existing relationships conscious again. It's not like we're not in relationship. And uh, yeah, so it's good for those reasons. And it allows us from that place to start to re, to tell a different story about what culture is. Because the story we tell ourselves now, if I, if I say to you or listeners, oh, I'm involved in cultural healing work, most people are going to assume that I'm engaging with other humans about human-created troubles and all that. That's not false. But if I said I'm engaged in cultural healing work and I mostly am hanging out with insects, people would be like, well, where's the cultural healing work? Like, um, like, do you know these people over here? They're small and they have more legs than you, but let me tell you. So um, that's the, the, I know I'm answering it kind of a, a less pragmatic layer, but that's the layer that has the most excitement for me these days is the way that we approach and conceptualize of these other kinds of people, these differently bodied people who are our kin on this planet and beyond if you want to focus there um, how we approach them makes a tremendous difference in how we're going to navigate through the mess we're in and also in how whole we're going to be as people so uh, the case is like yeah you should come back into connection because it's good and you'll get get, get things from it and you can you can enjoy more relational intimacy and expand your um, emotional psychological range by connecting with cedar trees and volcanoes and deities. But also you'll sleep better at night. Because the part of you that knows 
it's a relational universe, will feel like a little safer uh, existing as part of you. When we don't relate well with the rest of life, we create, I think you might call them like exiles, like cultural exiles and, uh, and maybe in IFS terms, I don't know the system that well, but we, we reject the parts of us that, um, that already know those things. I want to take a short break from today's conversation to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you reached a point in your healing journey where you plateaued, got stuck, or didn't know how to move forward? Maybe it's a behavior you're engaging in, one you know is unhealthy and you want to stop, yet no matter how much willpower you bring to it, nothing seems to shift. Or if things do shift for a short period, they eventually shift back making you feel like you're stuck in a painful cycle. Or maybe something challenging happened to you in the near or distant past that you know you haven't fully resolved. You have fears about doing that and also wonder how or where you'll find the time and or resources to do that. In my work as an internal family systems practitioner, I support hundreds of women who are experiencing these exact things. So much so that I felt inspired to compile a resource guide for any of you who might find yourself in similar places. So this free 10-page guide spells out the seven core obstacles we women face on our healing journeys, as well as the next steps to overcome them. Yes, it's totally free, and you can download it at womensyogateachertraining.com forward slash seven obstacles. And that's the number seven, not the word seven. So womensyogateachertraining.com forward slash seven obstacles. I hope and trust you'll recognize yourself in there and gain some new perspective and encouragement to find your next right step. So enjoy and now back to today's conversation. And so like, for instance, with you moving to new country, new land, like, what are some ways that you are engaging with the land there to build to build those new relationships in a new place? Yeah, uh, it's, I'm very early in that. I mean, I've done basic things like make offerings at the river and cemetery. And um, I try to be uh, like honest and generous with the people here, like giving a little extra change today with somebody who's you know had their bowl out or their hat out that's an offering to the earth also the humans here are the earth also but um i, I don't i'm not there yet but my, my spanish is is good but it's not excellent and i look forward to a time when i'm able hopefully next year to anchor in-person teachings that make space for with humility, some of the cultural pain that's present here to surface, even the the not very well metabolized 40 years of brutal dictatorship that ended in the 70s is still um, really raw and really present in a lot of people's hearts. And, in the, and, and to come in as a, someone who hasn't lived that story requires a great deal of humility and listening. And I do have some skills and ritual tech that can be useful for the people motivated to address the 
cultural wounds that are present here or in other places. I mean, that's that's my work. So I, I say that because I, I think belonging is earned. And so I'm looking for ways to earn my belonging here. And that's just going to take time. Like for now, it's just like being humble, following the rules, showing up for every little bureaucratic appointment and like not cutting corners and, you know, being respectful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you having lived in places for longer periods of time where, where you did have a deep connection with, with place and did have that deeper feeling of belonging. Um, what, like what, what was, what was the felt sense of that? Like, how did you know when you got to a place of like, yes, I'm deeply connected here? Hard to put that in words. Um, the place I have cultivated that most intentionally over a number of years was in the San Francisco Bay Area through hundreds really of, of days of in-person, like uh, on the ground outside ritual uh, on, you know, sometimes well, a, a lot of group ritual on the land and the mountains around the bay and with the waters and really um, coming to know the land as body, coming to relate with the mountain spirits directly with the um I would I would feel when I, I um, left the cir the circle of mountains around the bay. I would like feel it. Oh, I'm out of my terrain now. But when there, there was a sense of being able to um, be in a position to welcome others. And like I'm not alone. I know we make a lot of you know, uh, gestures of respect in different tangible relational and ritual ways to the indigenous peoples and ancestors and difficult history there. So uh, a lot of that ritual work was a form of earning belonging by tending to those layers of things. And, but uh, like, how does that feel? Well, that feels very intimate and very um, supportive. And like when you're in relationship with the land, enough that you've earned some degree of belonging and and when i say earn i don't mean like you have to earn your love or it's not like you have to be good enough i don't mean it in that way but i mean uh participation in the story and saying well your pain is my pain it's shared because we're family that's more how i mean it and uh and so moving like that there there's a sense for example that the land confers a kind of protection or a blessing because it it's in their best interest, the elders whose bodies are the place uh, that you not die. And so there's a sense that you'll be looked out for because you're being sponsored by those spirits because you're actually doing something that they wish for you to do. And, uh, it's, it was also very important as a sustained uh, working for me to break down some of the uh, conditioning being separate from the rest of life. And this whole like human nature binary or fiction. So coming to know my, my body as an extension of the land and the waters and all that, that um, 
it's good. It's uh, it, there's a lot of sorrow in it as well, because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pain right now in the earth. Yeah. Not only, but there's also a lot of that. So you got to be willing to feel deeply if you want deeper layers of intimacy. That I mean, that's true with anything, but it's also true with the land. I think. Yeah. So talking about feeling more deeply, um, I want to talk about grief a little bit. And I don't know if this is still on your website, but I know some years ago there was a talk on your website about grief as a sacred practice that was really supportive for me. And I just recommended it to a lot of people. And this is another thing that is not included in our culture, these rituals around grief and seeing grief as sacred. Um, can you speak more, more about this? Yeah, it's a topic I actually um, I love and I, you know, I'm teaching a course uh, next month or in late 2022 and practices for grieving and heartache. And so, but it's woven into a lot of other things. I teach uh, the animism work because how can you not uh, notice the catastrophe if you're connecting with the earth or with the ancestral healing work, whatever. There's a component of sorrow and reconnection, but Oh, what to say about grief. Um, psychology is generally better than the way the dominant culture tends to be, at least in the U.S., because psychology will at least affirm the importance of grieving rather than being blocked and repressive about it. However, the blind spot often of psychology of being too individualistic can lead us to have the confusion that it's my grief it's my sorrow, it's mine, it's uh, personal. It's like interior, private. And, you know, it might feel that way. I'm not saying it, it can't be like that, but I, I don't even know what's mine and not mine in terms of emotions and all that anymore. I can, sure, I get it to, in a practical way, but I'm not always clear what I'm sad about or what I'm list out about or whatever because it is um so inherent that we're participating in these in the bigger pain the bigger story and um yeah there are moments where i'll, I'll just uh almost collapse for a, a minute or two of just like sobbing or just just be hit by something it's the news. I've been following the war in Ukraine, for example, and war is such a such a disaster. And uh, for so many beings, human and other, and I think that we hold the world together through being willing to feel. It can be an act of uh, like stitching reality together, keeping things held in the greater um, story or like there needs to be um, what how to say it um, the world's made more of story than anything and grieving when things are fragmented or painful or just changing is a way of feeling the truth of the story and holding the world together through authentically expressing that that might involve tears, it might involve vocalizing or movement, 
or wearing all black or wearing all white or eating or not eating or, you know, 10,000 forms it can take. But the bearing witness to what's happening internally, externally, and not turning away from it requires some courage. And it is um, in that way of uh, an indispensable aspect of the overall path of being a, an adult, like being a, an emotional, spiritual, if you will, grown up, being willing to feel and turn toward like just how much pain there is and how much pain like in regular, quiet, domestic ways where we have sad, lonely childhoods and then we take it out on one another and, and how, how frequently that's happening or the ways like kids get bullied at school uh, and uh, it's not that we need to hang out in only that frequency because there's like 24-7 programming on the grief channel. It's not something you like drain the well of, but it's important to know that the ways that we hurt or feel sorrow are not only personal, that the personal is a gateway to collective pain. And part of being um, checked in to the world is having some door in your heart open to that, at least occasionally. So it tempers you and helps you to be more kind and humble and compassionate. So there's a lot of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, I know that just behind the scenes, I imagine that you're doing a lot. You're raising a family just moved, you are teaching a lot, you are also running a business. How is it for you to um, be with all these things simultaneously? It's hard. Sometimes it's lonely and a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but I choose it also, like the, like an international move with two young kids. It's not like a relaxing thing, really. <laughs> and and yet I'm really, um, like I said, I feel at the front end of a big detox. I'm like, like still, we haven't picked up our final like residency card. And even then we're not residents yet, but um it's not all the way real yet. So I haven't totally like relaxed into it, but it was a detox that I feel on the front end of. And um, yeah, what to say. I One thing I've been learning to let go of in recent years, really since becoming a father is perfectionism because I'm, uh, and my father and brother are both engineers in their own way, you know, vocationally. And I, I feel very in touch with my Germanic ancestry and very like, like we started the interview at nine here. I'm like, okay, it's exactly nine. Where are you at? <laughs> so that's not very Spanish, but that, um, that perfectionism is, uh, uh, I feel like I'm getting like a, a B at all the different domains of my life, which is like an A for humanity 
and uh, and still a B in the sense that I got books I want to write. I'd like to do even more with my kids. I'd like to be even more leaned in with my marriage, my self-care, my spiritual practice, my friendships, my Spanish studies, with my sleep, and, you know, all of it. But I'm... Uh, I'm kind with myself most of the time. And so that makes it workable. And I am allowing within the, uh, one of the traps of being a, being, becoming a brand, if you will, like ancestral medicine, like the ancestor guy, which is, is fine, but uh, I, it's imperative for me to be authentic and honest about where I'm at with that. And to allow my own, to allow myself to change and grow. Uh, if I don't, I'm not doing anybody else any favors. But it, it it's like any um, to artist to be like, oh, your second album wasn't like your first album. Like, yeah, yeah, no doubt. I didn't promise it would be. So there's a a, a weird way in in which becoming even a medium well known person. Uh, is a is a funny feedback loop that I you know it's hard to not notice a little bit how you're per perceived by the world, and then I'm like, oh, should I keep doing that? Should I do a different thing? Well, I need to fall back into even more uh, clarity about what I'm doing here. Make sure I'm true to that. Fortunately, I happen to still be into the ancestor tending, not because I I need to, but because I actually am learning new things about it as I go. But, um, that, you know, I, uh, I like being alive. And there's always more learning and growth and things to do and everything. But especially uh, marriage and parenting requires uh, flexibility and heart openness and the ability to yield. So I've continue to learn all those things and as you've grown and just out of necessity needed to hire more support and scale more and just offer bigger programs like what have been some of your biggest learnings around expanding in that way uh you're not going to make everybody happy and some people will have strong projections onto you and hate you even and feel like real, you know, like hatred for you. So that is complicated for someone who likes to be liked and is very Libra, true to the sign in that way of caring what people think on some level. <laughs> and so, uh, like, I wouldn't wish um, leadership or I don't know, fame is really describes my condition, but like being a public figure, I wouldn't wish that on my enemies, really. It's not, um, I, I don't mean in a whiny way, but it, it's, a, it's a weird um, condition a little because you have to wonder like, at times at least, are people relating with me because of that? Do they want something from me? Here in Spain, it's lovely because nobody asks you what you do really so much. Uh, like, what do you dedicate? What do you dedicate yourself to? It's like yeah. a soft way of asking it. Uh, the, uh, uh, but um, 
Oh, yeah. What to say? Um, I forgot the original question. Um, Just like what are the what are the biggest learnings from growing? Well, yeah, I've had to learn your to, business. To, to like dig into the finances and the hiring and uh, how to be a business person. And I don't, I, mean, I just didn't have those skills. I'm not sure that I uh, have them in abundance now, but I really, um, you know, meet regularly with our excellent director of operations and our have weekly staff meetings. And we have a team of around eight people right now, which it, you know, requires some income to employ eight people and to partially employ for side work a good number of other ritualists through the Ancestral Medicine Network as supervisors and event leaders. And so I enjoy bringing meaningful work into the world. And so that um, that's a point of satisfaction. I enjoy being able to meet the basic needs of my family doing work that I love. So I'm, I'm grateful in that way, but it's not easy. And people sometimes think it's like, Oh, you know, you got this rock star ideal life or like, that's great. Or, but it's easy in the weird distortion bubble of social media to form a picture of someone in their life. Or to be like, oh, I'm jealous of their success, or I have that feeling about someone, and it's like, oh, Daniel, like jealousy is a real um, corrosive kind of thing. To, it's important to me not push it away, but it, it's good to notice that, and it comes out of this place of scarcity and competition, which is really a it's a rough energy to sit with. But I try not to focus on it too much. You know, we, there's a need to responsibly inhabit the roles. And it, like, it means I can't be friends with a lot of people who would be, you know, awesome people to hang out with more because uh, they've studied with me mm -hmm. and then that's complicated. And so there's a, uh, a need to be attentive to power dynamics and all kinds of things and to, you know, be mindful of impact. That's just leadership yeah. in general. Yeah. And for anyone who's interested, and we're going to talk about um, how people can learn more from you or study more from you, but if someone's wanting to take, who hasn't done work with their ancestors before and is wanting just to take a next step towards that, is there any uh, simple practice or something that, that you could offer them? Yeah. I mean, the first layer of the thing is, Whatever you'll do, do that. If, yeah, because you need to just find a way in. So if it's like intellectual is the safety setting I will tolerate, then read the book or read a book, any book on your people. Uh, if you are open to doing direct one-on-one -on -one work, there's a directory of, I think, you know, 90-ish practitioners now. Uh, some still in training, but most uh, certified of those ones and the work's available in a dozen or more languages. And so do a session with somebody if you want. They're trained to guide clients in the client reconnecting directly with their own ancestors. The, the practitioners are not being like all psychic. They're just helping you to connect with your people in a safe way. So you can do that. We offer an online course, as you spoke to, which is a structured, perhaps less threatening 
or more connective way, perhaps, of moving through the steps of uh, safe ancestral lineage reconnection and healing work. And there are other courses that we offer through ancestral medicine that also uh, touch on the subject of ancestral reconnection. So those are options. And um, yeah, whatever, like sessions and the course and the book are the, the three uh, that come to mind, but whatever way people can find in, that's the way to go. It's not, uh, I guess one thing I would add there is there's nothing spiritual about it. You don't need to believe in anything. It's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm involved with religious traditions because there's a lot of interesting people and practices and teachings within them. But that's not everybody's deal. That's not like, I don't know, I feel like I'm mining them respectfully for juicy bits that the rest of the world doesn't want to have to do all that digging for. And, uh, but you don't need a different identity or a whole belief system or whatever to relate with your ancestors. Like if, if someone's going to eat better or like start a physical exercise practice, it's not like, well, I don't know if I believe in exercise and food. There isn't that extra layer. It's just like, wow, that's probably good for me. Let me try it. And so ancestor reconnection or ancestral healing work is just relational work. It requires culturally noticing messages you may have internalized that invalidate the reality of the ancestors. So in that way, it's cultural repair work, but it still doesn't mean it's religious. It's not about belief or spirituality per se. It's just relationship tending. Yeah. And what is your current growing edge? Well, I've been rediscovering a bit uh, discipline, spiritual discipline with practice, which is um, great. The, our younger one is in school in her like her cole, her Montessori daycare, and it's, she likes it. And it means we have some hours out of the day where there are no little nervous systems co-regulating with your body. And it's kind of glorious. And so I've been remembering what I like and need about spiritual practice. And uh, like I said earlier, the edge around not being perfectionistic is an ongoing edge. And then um, I want to write the second book finally. So making space, like being organized to make space for my creative process and value it. That's important. And uh, it's, you know, it's always being um, open-hearted for me is an is a important edge because I'm a little headstrong and I like that world of ideas and speech and teaching and all that. And it just, it's fun, which is fine. It just needs balance with the life of the heart and body wellness. So that's always a, those are always good balancing factors for me. If I'm taking good care of my body and resting enough, keeping my heart open, all the uh, spiritual teachings and words and all that tend to be fine. Like they're, they're in alignment and good for me. 
Otherwise, they become a, a way of avoidance of the more balanced approach. Do you have a sense of what your second book will be about? Yeah. Uh, cultural healing work, um, mm -hmm. earth, re earth reconnection to some degree, but also how to get at uh, cultural pain and uh, ancestral intergenerational pain through ritual work and how to transform that. Because that happens in happens in the practitioner training that I guide. We're in the sixth cohort or group of that. And um, there are moments often toward the end of the training where this potential starts to become clear when people have both done a lot of deep work with their own ancestors and they have a bit of a shared language for how to navigate in ritual space. They're like, oh, great. Now we got this. And now here's this whole other layer of it. That whole other layer is like, well, my people as a collective actually have things to say to your people as a collective. We have history. We have some, like, they have some things they need to talk about through us. How are we going to show up for that um, cultural decompression in this moment and the cultural uh, exchange? We do that unconsciously anyways. We read people as the face of their people, for better or for worse. But it's a little messy when it's not conscious and when there hasn't been ancestral healing work preceding it and there's no shared agreements. But when those things are in place, there's a lot of um, practices and possibilities that open up. So I am motivated to give some clarity and structure to that. And where can listeners learn more about you? I will have your links in the show notes, but, and also, is there anything coming up that you want to share with us? This will be coming out in November. Yeah, the, the grief course in December uh, is in that, and then the next ancestral healing, lineage healing course will start in early next year. But there's um, there's a lot of different offerings at this point. We have a whole a library now of self-paced courses that people can engage with and find where they're drawn. Like some people, like if you have listeners that are therapists, I a book that I don't have time to write is how in this moment is how to bring an earth honoring animist ancestor honoring perspective into the realm of psychotherapy and psychology in a way that is unapologetically decolonizing oriented and like, these are these are legitimate relationships to suggest otherwise is a problematic racist reductionist reductionist imposition of materialist epistemologies and all the academics can just sit the fuck down for a minute and listen to some more like ritually grounded earthy people that have been navigating the human psyche for some thousands of years before the creation of the field of psychology so that an actual dialogue can unfold. Uh, and so that, I know I'm having an intense edge about it, but um, it's how I feel toward the field. This is like the, the arrogance within the field when it's present, it's not always present, but it's often present. Um, causes me to just be like, like, sit down, stop talking like white European thing for a minute. And, uh, and from that moment, of pause, there's actually a lot of um, 
rich exchange that can unfold. And it's happening some, but it could be happening more. So there's a whole um, like side passion I have about the intersection of psychology with ritual arts and cultural healing. And there's an online course on that, on animist psychology, but I'm not foregrounding it right now. I just think of that as an example of, uh, it's not only ancestors all the time. Yeah. And so people, uh, what I'd recommend is, like I said earlier about ancestral reconnection is find your way in. If you find resonance with whatever I'm sharing, maybe it's the earth reconnection work or session work with somebody or psychology, whatever it is. So, yeah. Yeah. And the courses are great because they just give you that community and the container and the teachings just to go, go through the steps, do the practices it's more accountability. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's funny. I was talking with someone. I know we will finish soon, but I was talking with someone uh, who's trying to help me with writing a second book and just saying, like, some part of me wants to write like the popular, reflective, sort of poetic storytelling book. Like, I have that in me, but at the end of the day, like, I'm a, I'm a pragmatic teacher. And the way I wrote the ancestral healing book is like, here's the principle. Here's an example of it. Here's a poetic reflection on it. Here's a practice for how you do it. It's a how-to book. And that um, is important to me to equip people with practices rather than just like, you should kind of be like this. Yeah. Okay. To give people like the path. Yeah, like the tools to actually be like, I'm I'm just saying there's a mountain over there. Here's like a, a, a pickaxe and a rope and, you know, some furry gloves. And this is how it works for me, but, you know, give it a try. That's different than being like mountains are so beautiful. And like, look at that mountain over there. And people are like, oh, yeah, this person climbed that mountain. But people need, it's important that we each find our own direct experience of the sacred. And that we allow that to reorganize our life from the inside out. It doesn't matter how it comes, but it matters that it happened. Yeah. That feels like just the perfect thing to end with. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for, I don't know if you're usually a night owl. I'm impressed that you're doing this at nine o'clock, uh, 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I have another teaching in a half an hour. That's how it has okay. to go. Here. I'm yeah. usually asleep by nine, but yeah, um, the thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you for being here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That is the best way to support me in continuing on with this podcast and also to support other women in finding this, other women who may find this beneficial for their own lives. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're not already signed up for my newsletter, Monthly Insights, which I've been sending out now for almost 20 years, I welcome you to join me and a community of like-hearted women from around the world there. You can subscribe at my website, sarahavonstover.com. Until next time. I'm sending you my heartfelt support.